Mission Creep, fresh and frank voices in global development. I felt like smashing my glasses there. I just want to... You have a true friend down under. Welcome to another episode of Mission Creep, fresh and frank voices in global development. I'm Brendan Rigby, the co-founder and managing director of YDEV, and we'd love to welcome you back to another episode. We had a bit of a hiatus while a lot of people were traveling, particularly our regulars, Way and Carly, but one of them is back and we have a fantastic guest to fill in for Way this week. I'm joined by Carly Steffen of the Centre for Social Change up in Brisbane. And Carly, you're recently returned from Fiji. I am. Recently returned again, yes. Recently returned again. It seems like you're always popping off to Fiji. I know, three times in the last couple of months. That's but, great. But now it's, yeah, I'm pretty much done for this year. Well, welcome, <laughs> welcome home. And then across the pond over in Boston, we're joined by Jennifer Ambrose, who is the editor-in-chief of YDEV, but in her full-time paid role, she's a researcher at Mathematica Policy Research. Welcome, Jen. Thanks, Brendan. It's good to be here. And I know you're recently returned from overseas as well. I am, yeah. I just got back from a trip to China, which after years of focusing on Africa, suddenly my work took me to Shanghai, which I never thought would happen. So it was interesting. And would you refer to Shanghai as the field? I don't think so. Too many skyscrapers. (laughs) Doesn't qualify. (laughs) We have another three fantastic topics to talk about this week. Uh, First, Carly is going to be sharing her badges of ill health with us, and I'll let her explain that. And then we're going to be moving on to road safety for development and bringing it home we'll be talking about what the effect and what the impact of snark in development why do we do it what's its purpose and does anyone actually change their opinion or mind when they read something snarky carly so let's kick it off with the badges of ill health what are badges of ill health (laughs) it was a term i came up with about two minutes ago no, it was a, it's it. I was basically reminded of the. It's it's not so much a competition, but but more of a. I I feel like it is like badges of ill health. You know how you collect in scouts and brownies, like you're you're, yeah. you're so on patches for things you've achieved. That in aid and development, you do tend to people tend to have like sewn on things like yeah, I had malaria. Haven't you had malaria? Or, I've had dengue. Or I me mean, really? Have you not had? such and such a disease and and it reminded me because what my work in Fiji we were were working with some of the bigger CSOs and NGOs there to do survey profiling in villages to assist villages with their own community development plans and on the profiling tool is a a long list of different diseases and uh, and illnesses I was just looking through all of them and just thinking it looks like a checklist for an aid and development worker you know sort of to when you move through all these different places like have you had this disease, um, Giardia, have you had malaria? Have you had, you know, all of these sorts of things? And uh, and it made me think about the fact that I have had conversations with many people in the past about uh, one in particular reminded me, an ex-project manager, a friend of mine, said that he, you know, that you weren't an aid worker unless you'd had, you weren't a proper aid worker unless you'd had malaria. You had to have a specific illness like malaria in order to say, "Yeah, I'm a, I'm an aid worker in the field." And and I personally haven't, and I and I thank, thank goodness for that. My the worst thing I've had on on any work trips has been probably a just a super super awful 
bug of some kind that resulted in gastroenteritis, probably like a Giardia type of thing, moves through me, I think as a result of horrendous kava or something like that. Like, and it was, you know, a couple of days of really awful, awful stuff, but, you know, coming out both ends. <laughs> but uh, but nothing nothing worse. But have you guys ever come across this sort of badges of ill health kind of thing in your work, or or what's the worst illness you've had? I've definitely come across the badges of ill health. But like you, I don't really, I haven't earned that many badges. I have had the you know inexplicable coming out both ends. Most recently, I was in Sri Lanka for a work trip a couple weeks ago, it was me and the director of the division that I work in at Mathematica, just the two of us. We were doing interviews one day, the next day I couldn't even get out of bed. Um, but it happened from, you know, this like Western fancy restaurant and all, you know, all the advice is, oh, don't, don't eat the street food, you know, don't whatever, like, you know, stay at the, the nice the restaurants with the other expats and yeah, in all my travels, the few times I've been really sick, it's always been from those fancy western restaurants so i think from now on i'm just gonna stick to you know the street food yeah that's a hazard those fancy western restaurants if i can display my badge i have had malaria i've had it three times Ooh. i've had it three oh. times which three times yeah which always it always gets yeah. me a step above anyone else who yeah. says they've had malaria it's power up yeah power big up, time Brendan. yeah big time i don't know in girl scouts you can't you can't get the same badge multiple times <laughs> no but like Kelly said you can get it you can get power up you know there's level one level two level three <laughs> but i i know we have quite a cavalier attitude particularly to malaria i found when i was living and working in northern ghana it was a quite a cavalier attitude to malaria amongst the expat community and it was something Kelly that you had to go through as a rite of passage. But at the same time, colleagues I worked with in the UNICEF office there almost had a same cavalier attitude towards it, you know, including, you know, national Ghanaian staff. Many of them would come into work with malaria and they would just kind of like brush it off and be like, oh, it's okay, it's not a big deal. I only have malaria. So sometimes I feel like it's not just like an expat attitude that there is a general attitude particularly in malaria prone countries to just kind of sucking it up and putting up with malaria like if you have access to treatment it's very treatable and it and it can there are quite cheap drugs available depending on where you are so i'm in two minds about our attitude to it i because i have seen <laughs> the same attitude displayed by by non-expats by non-white people uh, but at the same time, when you're swapping stories with people, it does feel like a bit of a playground competition to see who's had the worst. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was a Peace Corps volunteer and in Peace Corps, it's, you're not a real Peace Corps volunteer unless you shit your pants. So I think, you know, being like a step below professional aid workers, it's a little bit less civilized. So I guess I'm not a real Peace Corps volunteer or a real aid worker. <laughs> but, I, but I think, Jen, the, the Peace Corps volunteers, you guys are more hardcore than many other people. Uh, you know, expat workers, because... Yeah, that's what we like to think. No, I think it's true, though. I mean, Peace Corps get sent to the most remote parts of many countries. Um, Absolutely. You guys don't get per DMs. And... That's true. Yeah, I mean, that lifestyle is a very big difference from the one I'm living now on my work trips. No doubt about that. Although, you know, I didn't get malaria in Peace Corps because I was taking malaria prophylaxis while I was there. I don't know if you guys have taken those medications, but the side effects are horrendous. So 
yeah, I mean, I haven't gotten malaria, but I had these horrible, vivid nightmares about people oh. attacking me, like, Were you on regularly. Yes, that's what Peace Corps gives is larium. Yeah, no, not good. Yeah. Larium no. is terrible. Proven to be very not good. <laughs> uh, what are some other badges of ill health? I was at a recent uh, retreat in Melbourne with a with an Australian NGO, and it didn't take long before people started swapping badges of ill health, Carly. And, you know, dengue was, was a pretty big badge. I feel like uh, if you've had dengue, then you've had some of the worst of it because that just sounds horrible. I know, I know Wei has had dengue at least once, if not twice, and it does not sound pleasant. I mean, malaria was, was fine personally for me. I, I developed a really high fever and started getting um, bad back pain, and I, and I thought it was malaria, so I went and got a $2 blood test which confirmed it and then, you know, bought $5 worth of treatment medicine. And that, that was my experience. It wasn't that bad. So what are some other, but it seems to, it seems to have come back though. I mean, is it, doesn't it, once it's in your system, it kind of can come back. So I think that's a, that's actually a myth about one strain of malaria. There's two yeah, main cere- strains. Cerebral malaria. Cerebral malaria is, is the more dangerous, yeah. but the, the more, the run of the mill malaria, the run of the mill malaria, the most, expats seem to to get as that most people die from that's yeah. right well that's the interesting thing i remember being this really sticks out to me i remember being in this um large meeting this large gathering in northern ghana on a on a quote-unquote field trip with unicef and it was a health related uh get together and the local health uh clinics and uh regional centers were reporting back on on their outcomes for the year and in every single presentation you know the number one cause of death was malaria mm. you know by and far particularly for children yet the focus of, of of funding and of programs for that particular year was not malaria prevention or treatment it mm. was it was uh, maternal mortality which was really yeah. interesting that that it again yeah this kind of like attitude towards malaria just generally, the, even though it was the biggest killer, it wasn't at that time the number one priority. It's not just illnesses, though. I think there are all sorts of mm-hmm. other badges too, right? Like, oh, like you know, I went to a village that was five hours away. My village <laughs> was twelve hours away. Like, I rode in on the back of a truck. I rode on top of a truck. <laughs> That really doesn't stop with illnesses. There's many other categories of badges. I think that we're gonna. This might have to be a recurring segment on the mission creep. Badges. <laughs> Badge of the week. Badges you can collect in development. <laughs> or it could be the next fifty-two post. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, fifty-two badges Perfect. of ill health. The uh, I won't I won't name names, but a particular organization in Ghana. They used to love sending their uh, international staff between northern Ghana and, and the capital, Accra, uh, by bus, which can be a, you know, a 12 to 16-hour journey and is un- quite unsafe in some sections of it, whereas the rest of us would always fly because flying would take 45 minutes but was you know, about 300 times more expensive. But for them, that was a real badge of only travelling by bus when they needed to go down to the capital, whereas I think for the rest of us it was a badge to be able to afford to take a plane. 
I think that's one of the badges in Peace Corps. One of the reasons why we think we're so hardcore is all about the public transportation. Thank you, Jen. Yeah. That's a brilliant segue into the next topic. You set that up perfectly. <laughs> and I knock it out. So speaking of public transportation and buses, the Economist had a very short but very provocative article recently that looked at road accidents. And this was based on a report, another report, not the Bacon report, but another report published by World Health Organization, WHO, um, quite recently. And it found that road accidents are the leading cause of death among 15 to 29-year-olds globally. 40 out of the 50 countries with the highest road deaths across all ages, 40 of those countries are actually in Africa. And as we know, there are 54 countries. Well, as you should know, there are 54 countries in Africa. So that's the majority of the African continent. What's even more startling is that traffic accidents now kill more people than malaria in many African countries. And this includes Kenya, Ethiopia, uh, South Africa, Sudan. It may include Ghana as well. I wouldn't be surprised. Yet road safety as a, a thematic area, as a sector, as an as a area for programming and funding is not on anyone's agenda. It's not even close to being in conversation. When I thought about this, it's, it's, it really got me puzzled because when we talk a lot about particularly foreign aid in development, uh, we look at the success foreign aid has had in health, in saving people's lives. And that has been something that advocates and, and others have been able to point to about how many lives have been saved because of foreign aid. And I think that's a really powerful argument. Yet we seem to be losing so many people each year to traffic accidents. Um, and here's an opportunity to really save a lot of people's lives if there was um, funding and priority and programming on road safety, uh, particularly uh, in these African countries. I avoided as much as I could traveling on roads, particularly in Northern Ghana. I, I tried not to take those buses because of the safety record and, and other horror stories I heard. The, the famous uh, trotros, as they're called in Ghana, they're called something uh, different in, you know, a lot of African yeah, countries. Yeah, in, in Kenya they're matakus. Yeah, but those, those kind the of vans. vans the vans. The vans, yeah. The, you know, the Saturday morning soccer mum type vans, but, but infinitely worse. That, and just, with 100 people. With 100 people in them. And traveling at 100 kilometers an hour. That's right. So I, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, we used to, on on the road to a particular community that I used to visit a lot, there was a police station, and out, out the front of the police station, they would display the, the wreckage of all the vehicles that had been in road accidents along that. And, the, and these things just uh, explode into smithereens. You know, there's nothing left of them because they are so, uh, I think, poorly built, and they do strip a lot of stuff out of these trotros, out of these vans, so they can accommodate more people and put in more seats. So there's no, you know, structural integrity into many of these vehicles. So I'm not surprised uh, that we have uh, a report like this. So then I guess my question to you guys and, and just more broadly is why isn't road safety on the development agenda? I think it is on the agenda in some places. I mean, China's investing a lot in building and mm. paving roads in Africa, yeah. right? So, I mean, maybe it's not on the Western aid agenda, mm. but maybe someone's thinking about it at least. But in terms of projects that I've seen, I mean, I have seen some kind of public service campaigns encouraging people to, you know, drive slower, avoid drunk driving. 
um, you know, on billboards and radio ads and things like that, which I think are more often sponsored by the government mm -hmm. or local organizations and foreign NGOs. But I also don't know how effective those things are. And I wouldn't be that surprised if they're not very effective. I agree, Jen. I, I've heard a lot about both China and JICA, Japan's aid agency, mm -hmm. doing a lot of road work throughout Africa and throughout the Pacific, actually. Uh, I actually, having driven the, the, the long King's Road between Suva and Nandi many times in the last few months, have noticed similar billboards about warning against speeding and warning against, you know, uh, dangerous driving and that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm not sure how much that does affect uh, the road tolls, but certainly that is a, it looks like a government like the national government's initiative, uh, less so any kind of aid and development organisation uh, contributing to it, but who knows behind the scenes whether or not that's the case. But truly, I mean, road safety for development's not sexy, is it? Like, how how are you going to get, you know, you're going to do, like, I think fundraising is one of the most important aspects, you know, sort of whether or not funds get funneled into uh, certain causes and uh, I think if you were to sort of try and host a ball or host a whatever telethon for road safety people would be like hang on a second no or isn't that the government's job you know the government mm. of the nation even though aid and development is you know coming mm. in and subsuming a lot of that mm. uh you know so-called responsibility for you know the health sector the education sector the you know, ad nauseum. Yeah, I think that road safety for development isn't sexy enough, frankly. You know, a lot of the framing around diseases like malaria is that they are preventable. You know, these are preventable diseases. Yet traffic accidents seem to be preventable too, right? Like it would fall into that same category of, 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 Absolutely. A, of, a, of a health and safety issue that is preventable. You know, this could be a chance for for international governments and for donors to really get amongst it. I know Australia, we do a lot of a lot of national and state advertising and awareness raising campaigns on road safety. It's still a really big issue here, even in Australia. And here down in Victoria, we have some of the most confronting and graphic road safety ads you've ever seen that will just scare the living daylights out of you. So it's still a big issue here, but, but it's still not conceived I don't believe as a development issue. It's not sexy, sure, but if we're just looking at a pure numbers game in terms mm. of preventable deaths, it's it seems quite unreal to me that it's not on anyone's agenda. It's not on when I say that, I mean it's not on donors' agenda. It's not on the Donor international agendas. agenda. Considering yeah. how many people's lives could be saved. Absolutely. Is there? I mean, which UN agency would be responsible for this? We'd have to create one. <laughs> The wider UN, UN agency for road safety. United yeah. Nations RS Road 40. Safety Authority, RSA. Catchy. Yeah, right. UN RSA. You heard it Done. here. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Brendan. You know, I think it's also not just about building roads or getting people mm. to drive safer, but also about the enforcement of that. And that's probably where the idea that this should be the government's, I mean, I agree, it, it's the government's responsibility to enforce traffic laws, to enforce vehicle maintenance regulations. I mean, I don't know that there's so much that NGOs or donors can do about that other than, 
you know, advocating to the government that they should make that a priority or trying to train government officials on doing it. But when there's still so much corruption, especially, you know, in traffic stops and that type of thing, I don't know if that's so likely to happen. But this is the same problems then that we have in, in any sector in development. We have those same issues and that doesn't stop donors and international community from getting involved. You know, so look, so looking at an analogy with education, you know, okay, so roads, it's more than just about, you know, building the roads and, and making roads safe and accessible. You know, it's the same thing in education. It's more than about building schools and, and putting a school in every community and make sure it's there. You know, it goes beyond that. And you still have those same issues of, of poor uh, government capacity, of corruption, of, you know, competing priorities. I think all those same issues are still there in a lot of different sectors. But, but I think education officials aren't in the position of enforcing a country's law. I think that's where the difference is. Like, usually NGOs aren't in the position of enforcing laws or, you know, using power to enforce laws the way that, you know, if it's police officers or traffic officers would have the authority to do in a country. Although, I mean, I think, you know, you also have the issue with health and doctors and that kind of thing, you know, say in in the instance of uh, abortion laws and that kind of thing or, you know, assisting people, you know, like there's mm. still similar issues in terms of enforcing, I guess, the letter of the law in certain sectors that, you know, it, it may fall down, it may not. <clears throat> but... Uh, but yeah, I think the road safety issue is. Look, I, you know, I think there could be some quick wins on the board. Yeah, Brendan, you need to set up this UN agency. Big time, basically. You know, great. And I think you should probably get the Australian government to, you know, get all of its ads translated into various different languages look, and just get them yeah. screened in other countries. There's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of synergy, Carly. A lot of synergy. Um, we could easily get in the private sector to get behind this. You know, the big yeah. the big companies, Ford, Toyota. They would Toyota, kick in some yeah. money to this. Um, I can see all these capacity building workshops for drivers, mm -hmm. for government officials, for police. We could just do capacity building on everything. It'd be amazing. That's a wazoo. That would be. That sounds, yeah, making road safety sexy. Could be. No, this has Nobel Peace Prize written all people, over it. People, people can donate their old cars to Africa. Done. I'm pretty Brilliant. sure you can already do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we we would just need a spokesperson. We would need a, a celebrity spokesperson or two. Um, That's I, what this cause needs. Definitely. And can I just put Maybe a name out? Can I put a name out there already? Hmm? Vin Diesel. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> that seems like the obvious choice. And we can. That, you know, and then all you need to do is just somehow bring bacon into it, and <laughs> you've got a perfect, perfect campaign. That's right. Don't eat bacon. Mm -hmm. And don't speed. <laughs> <laughs> don't eat bacon while driving. <laughs> yes. Now I feel like we're we're verging on on the edge of being a bit snarky, and that's a great no. segue. No, they're not snarky ever. And that's a great segue into our last topic for today's episode, and that's whether or not being snarky and snarky critiques of development are effective. You know, does anyone? actually change their mind when they read something snarky or is it just something to help us get by in our day-to-day -day jobs? Uh, Jen? Yeah, thanks, Brendan. I've been doing a lot of work lately on advocacy, looking at 
criticisms of advocacy campaigns, you know, like coding 2012 and the like. And it's got me thinking a lot about all the snarkiness that tends to come with that. I mean, you know, aid commentators in general, YDEV included, sometimes we tend to be a snarky bunch. And so in reflecting on this more, I've been thinking about, you know, why are we so snarky? Um, and what are we, what are we trying to accomplish with the mm -hmm. snarkiness? Are we, I mean, I think really, you know, most people's goal underneath everything else is that, yeah, we are trying to help people. We are trying to promote development. And when we criticize a bad aid campaign, it's because we are trying to make aid better in some roundabout way. Um, and, you know, trying to use humor to distract us from the troubles of the field also. But in a lot of cases, it really just turns into, you know, more experienced aid workers maybe trying to look at younger people and just really put them in their place, assert our authority and our superiority over people who don't know what they're doing. And so I'm wondering, what effect does that have? Um, you know, when, when people who are younger see this type of snark, do they really respond to it? Do they um, take it seriously and change their mind? Or, and I'm worried this is the case, does it result in people who are trying to get engaged, who care about the issues but maybe aren't experienced, you know, does it just discourage them from wanting to be involved at all? Um, so we complain that people don't care about problems on, other, on the other side of the world, but maybe we're not really encouraging them to care or get involved with when we're just, you know, being snarky whenever they make mistakes. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Does snark have a purpose um, or is there a better way? I read an article not too long ago about, well, I think it was more to do with sarcasm, but sarcasm and snarking is kind of, you know, bedfellows mm -hmm. uh, and how the use of snark and sarcasm in particularly written articles is actually done it's, it's almost, it's actually a form of uh, communicating intelligence and smartness and creativity in, in communication as well. So whether or not it actually is in the end, like you said, like in terms of is it actually achieving the aims that you're, you're wanting to, like highlighting issues, uh, encouraging people to become involved with something or to stop being involved with something or, you know, like is it actually achieving an outcome or is it merely uh, demonstrating the person's, the, the writer's uh, ability to cleverly, uh, you know, write something in a way that's, that, that shows their, you know, supposed intelligence, smartness, creativity. I remember when I first uh, came across the blog, um, stuff expat aid workers like, and I was still studying and, you know, didn't have any real work experience in the sector. And I just found it too much snark. For me, it was, it, it was, I think, on the bad side of snark, Jen, that you mentioned, in that I felt alienated. I felt like this wasn't useful. I felt like, you know, you're just talking to a bunch of insiders, so what's the mm. point? But then when I, you know, started to get some work experience and, and see those things that they were making fun of and, and witness it and live it, then I started empathizing and thought, oh, my God, yes, it is exactly like this. They were speaking. They, then, I, then I became part of that insiders club. Um, so I think that's okay if that's your purpose. If your purpose is to, just to speak to that insiders club and be in the know and feel like you are part of a community, then that's fine. And I think it has its place. But if you have a broader pl platform and a wider audience, then, yeah, you're not going to be able to engage people meaningfully by making them feel excluded 
and making them feel like they're not part of the insiders club. And we there was an interesting discussion the other day. We were talking about how to get people, you know, inside the shop. So, you know, if, if the window is where the advertising and messaging is done to to your audience or to the broader public, then that can justify certain types of messaging. It can justify certain type of advertising because you just want to get people in the shop. You just want to get oh, them click, indoors. Clickbait. Yeah, exactly, Carly. You just want to get them indoors and then you can start the real engagement. And I don't necessarily agree with, with, with that idea that you just need to get people in the door because I think it needs to start, you know, in the window as well. Right. We just had a post on White Up about that a few weeks ago and it was about how, you know, a lot of organizations start with trying to engage people with very simple actions like, you know, clicking like, following their page, stuff like that. And then kind of, you know, gradual level up, I guess, maybe this is another badge, move them up to donating, attending events, learning more about the context. Um, and I think he kind of found that sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't work so well. But I agree with you guys. It definitely depends on who your audience is. Although I think sometimes that can be a little bit hard. I mean, I think we've had some posts at WIDEV that were written, you know, that were snarky, that were aid workers, written for aid workers, just meant to be, you know, this funny thing that was insider jokes. And then, you know, somehow they kind of got out and it became like much more broadly disseminated. And then people responded poorly to us. And, you know, I remember kind of thinking, well, yeah, I see your point. This is actually like we're being assholes in this article. But it wasn't really meant for you. But, I mean, if you put it on the Internet, like, it kind of has to be meant for everybody, right? Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, I think that used in, in, in certain contexts, I think it can be really effective. But I think maybe we, we you know, perhaps we need to watch our snarkometer. Just, just even, right, I think we can default to it a lot, particularly as we see, you know, newer things coming online or, or you know, people younger aid and development workers or whatever, it can it can bring out the, the snark and the sarcasm. And, I mean, I personally have been trying to watch my sarcasm and my mm. snark. I get lazy and I do, just, you know, default to it sometimes. I was reflecting on something similar, Carly, um, in that I realised that I... I, I tend towards the no and the negative more often than not. You know, if I see something, if I read about something, my initial gut reaction is critical and it will be like a no, like, no, that's not right or no, that's not how it should be done. And I was just thinking, like, this is not the way to engage people. If you keep telling people no, 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 that's, that's going to be a barrier of entry for them and it's not yeah. going to get them into the shop. But if you're able to be curious and try to inspire and try to do it more positively and in a more of a yes way, then that will open the door to people and get them in the shop at least. So I, yeah, it's interesting. I'm being quite conscious of that too now and being like, man, I got to stop saying no. Yeah. Yeah. I think being curious, asking, no, no. Uh, I think asking questions is also a really useful way to, you know, someone presents a, a perspective that, you say may have traditionally said no to or to you know sort of previously been like that is just wrong asking a question right you know not not sort of like handing down a judgment and saying you know no that's completely but just asking a question like so what is it that makes you feel like that or what is it that that you know drives you to do 
what have you. And, and it doesn't mean that you have to agree with the person so much as you are engaging with them in a non-combative way and creating space to, for discussion and sharing rather than a judgment call mm. on what it is that they've said or done. Mm. Uh, I think that that's a really, yeah, sort of effective way of, of engaging with, with anything really, but, uh, you know, particularly in terms of the development sphere. Right now I just kind of feel like I have Jay in my head saying like, no, some things are definitely wrong. <laughs> well, you may have to talk to Jay in your head and, and suggest that you open up a little. But yeah, we, but we know this, Jen, right? Like we know what is wrong. It's just whether or not we need to verbalize it in a sarcastic, snarky way, particularly particularly to the insiders, you know, wouldn't it be better and more effective to actually try and inspire those insiders and try and change how they operate as professionals and practitioners rather than just everyone kind of having a laugh at how dismal and bleak everything is. I mean, there, there needs to be an outlet for, you know, those frustrations, but if the outlet is only snark and it's only inside jokes, then I'm not sure how cathartic that is in the long term. That's a good point. Maybe it's just, you know, a replacement for alcohol in the field. <laughs> <laughs> abusing, abusing snark. Or, or a replacement for bacon. No replacement for bacon. So I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Uh, we would love to have you respond. We'd love you to share your badges of ill health and weigh in on, on whether or not snarkiness should be continued or discontinued you can subscribe to us on itunes or on soundcloud uh, join in the conversation on twitter at hashtag mission creep dev love to thank our guests today jen and carly thank you very much for joining us thank you thanks Brennan. and we'll see you next time <laughs>